All right, we've been looking through Mark's gospel for this last year, um, almost coming up a year in Mark, and uh, we're almost halfway through, so you can figure we'll finish it maybe this time next year, um, <laughs> or maybe we'll push it through to Easter 2019, I don't know, we'll see. Well, we're up to Mark chapter 8, and uh, we're going to read through quite a few different sections today. Um, but we'll do it in parts, so we'll, uh, if you've got your Bible, you might want to turn to Mark chapter 8 and verse 22, and we're going to start by reading the first little section there, which says this, um, they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand and led him outside the village. When he'd spit on the man's eyes and put his hands on him, Jesus asked, do you see anything? He looked up and said, well, I see people. They look like trees walking around. Once more, Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes, and then his eyes were opened. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. Jesus sent him home, saying, don't even go into the village. All right, we'll start with just that for now. Um, so whenever you read Scripture, um, whenever you read the Bible, um, we need to ask questions of the scripture that we're reading. And uh, there's questions that, that come to mind. Certainly when I read this passage, there's questions that come to mind immediately. Um, what, let's see what people think. What do you think the big question here is that comes to mind as you read this passage? What, what things do you think? Oh, I wonder what that's about. Or I wonder what that means. Or what's some of the big... Yeah, Mark. Okay, that's the one. That's the first one that we're going to look at. Why didn't he get healed right away? Why didn't he get healed right away? There might be other questions as well that you might have, like why did Jesus spit in his eyes? That might be another one. Okay, I'll let you figure that one out. You can go home and, and, and have a think about that. But the commentaries probably won't help you. <laughs> one of the commentaries on that one that I read today, it said, it just said, Jesus entered into the world of the man, and he has significant contact with him. <laughs> it's like, he's just spat in his eyes. <laughs> significant contact. <laughs> What's this? Anyway, we're not even looking at that particularly right now. We'll touch on it in a minute. But uh, the big question I, I asked with this one is, why does this man get healed in two stages? Why is he only partially healed first of all. Now, people have lots of different ideas about this. Some people say, oh, well, it's to show us that sometimes we have to pray more than once for people to get healed. Um, there's some truth in that. Um, our experience might tell us that we do sometimes pray for people and we have to keep on praying. And the Bible does talk to us about um, keeping persisting in prayer, keeping asking God for things. And we might experience sometimes where people kind of get partially healed and and we press in, yeah, okay, um, it's good. But to be honest, it's not as though Jesus couldn't do this in one go. Jesus has healed lots of people, and he's healed other blind people as well. And he'll go on and heal other blind people, Bartimaeus, uh, later on in the, uh, in the gospel. He's able to fully heal someone right away. Um, there's nothing to suggest here this one's any more difficult. It's not like, oh, this is a really tough one for Jesus, and he can only do it in part. He's lacking in a bit of power. No, that, that's not the case at all. So, you know, that, that might be a partial answer. I don't think it's the main answer. Um, why else might things look blurred and unclear to the man? Well, 
came to me this morning, he'd got spit in his eyes. I guess if you... <laughs> If someone's just spat in your eyes and said, what do you see? You're like, oh, it's all a bit, you know, I can't really see very clearly. And it says, then, he, then Jesus put his hands in his eyes again, and he's probably just wiping it away. Now can you see? I'm not sure it was that, although, you know, I was quite excited by that revelation this morning. <laughs> I believe if we, I believe there's other reasons as well. And if we look at other passages around this, and we see the context, we might get some idea. Um, so my belief here is, as well as for the benefit of the man who's got healed, clearly, this is also for the benefit of Jesus' disciples. Now remember, Jesus has been using the miracles that he's done uh, to also teach his disciples. So there's two things going on. He's proclaiming his kingdoms coming in power. He's bringing healing and deliverance. But all the time, he's teaching his disciples about who he is and about um, significant things. And so even just in the last passage that we looked at a couple of weeks ago, Jesus fed 4,000 people, and he'd already fed over 5,000 people. And still his disciples weren't believing that he was going to provide for them. Um, they were getting obsessed with having not brought enough bread in the boat, if you remember. And Jesus teaches into it and says, oh, you know, I'm the one who's going to provide for you. You don't need to worry. And in chapter 8 and verse 17, in that passage, Jesus says, do you not see, do you still not see or understand? Now, interesting. He says to his disciples, do you still not see? And then the, what's the very next thing he does? He comes and finds someone who does not see physically. The man's blind. The disciples are blind. They're spiritually blind. The man is physically blind. And we are all spiritually blind until God works in our lives. Until Jesus comes and we encounter him and he does a great work in our lives, we are spiritually blind. It's only God who can open our eyes to help us understand the Bible often speaks of people being spiritually blind. For example, when God uh, speaks to Paul on the Damascus Road, and remember, he blinds him at that point. Um, God speaks to Paul on the Damascus Road, and he commissions him uh, to go and speak the truth of the gospel. And this is what he says in Acts 26. Paul's recounting this. Uh, he's remembering it. He says, um, then I asked, Paul says, who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you're per persecuting, the Lord replied. Now get up and stand on your feet. I have appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and a witness of what you have seen and will see of me. So Paul's seen something of Jesus. He will see more of Jesus. I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. I'm sending you to them to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light from the power of Satan to God, so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So it's the same imagery that Paul's using here. It's, um, you've been blind, now I've opened your eyes, you're going to see even more of me, and I'm sending you, and what's your job? It's to open the eyes of other people. We've got a world who is spiritually blind, blind to the truth of Jesus, blind to the gospel, blind to the realities of God and we're praying and we're bringing a message which is going to open people's eyes. We need God to open people's eyes. But it doesn't always happen in one go. 
people's eyes don't always get fully opened in one go. So for this man, there was an interim stage. There was a point where Jesus laid his hands on him, and he could see something, but he couldn't see clearly. He saw people, but they didn't look like people. They looked like trees walking around. He couldn't see clearly until Jesus put his hands on him again, and then he could see clearly. So it's an interesting question, isn't it? You could say, well, was this in this middle period, is this man blind? Or is he, or can he see? Well, it's kind of half and half. Yes and no. He was neither one thing or another. He could see a bit, but he couldn't see clearly. And it's possible for us to be in this stage too in our lives. We can kind of be in this intermediate stage spiritually. And we'll see in a moment, that's where the disciples were. And we're going to go on to the next few passages. There can be people who come to church and sit with us and uh, be amongst us. We can talk to people. It seems like, oh yeah, you've got some knowledge of God, you've got some understanding, but then you see other things and you think, oh, I'm not sure they really do understand. Do they know God? Do they not know God? I'm not sure. But there's a bit of a lack of clarity. We can see it more sometimes even in ourselves. We might have those questions ourselves. We can think, well, I I kind of feel I, I know something of God, but I don't know, I'm really struggling, and, and the things that I think, and the things that I do, and, and you might even find you're leading somewhat of a double life. You think, oh, I'm going to come to church, and I'm, I'm going to, yeah, I really want to know more of God, but then I just get pulled into other things. You know, it's church on Sunday, but I don't look any different to anyone else on Monday. And so you can be confused, and actually, that's a pretty miserable place to be. It's a miserable place to be when you know something of God, Um, but you don't know God in his fullness and all that God wants to reveal to us. Martin Lloyd-Jones talks about it, and he says, you know, it's the most miserable place to be. We know, he says, we know enough about Christianity to spoil our enjoyment of the world, (laughs) but we don't know enough to be happy, to be truly happy in ourselves. We're kind of living in this middle place where we're like, oh, I know I shouldn't do those things, but I'm getting pulled into them, and and, and the pull is too great, and we're just miserable. And people can be like that sometimes. We can be like the church in Philadelphia that Jesus speaks to in uh, the book of Revelation. We're neither hot nor cold. Jesus says, well, you're kind of lukewarm. You're lukewarm. Well, there's good news this morning. Because there's good news because Jesus enabled the man to see clearly, and he didn't stay in that interim stage. And Following this healing, Jesus' focus is on his disciples' blindness, and they were in this kind of middle stage, and then they later on were going to see. We won't see that fully in this passage, but they were going to see too. And for us, we can have confidence that God wants to work in our lives and enable us to see clearly. And maybe even this morning, God is is going to open some of our eyes. All right, let's read the next little part. This is where Peter and the disciples begin to see clearly. It says, Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, who do people say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Peter answered, you're the Messiah. And Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. Up until now, the big question in the whole of Mark's gospel, the big question has been, who is Jesus? That's the question 
that Mark has raised in, the, in all his accounts coming up time and time again. It's been asked several times. Spiritual forces tended to know who Jesus was right from the start. In Mark 1, the demon that Jesus cast out said he knew who Jesus was. I know who you are. You're the Holy One of God, he says. The demon knew who he was. The demons in Mark 5 called Jesus the Son of the Most High God. But most people didn't know who Jesus was. When Jesus calmed the storm, even his disciples said, Who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. Who is this? When Jesus went to Nazareth, people didn't see who he was in Mark chapter 6. And they said, Isn't, well, what's going on? Isn't this the carpenter? Mary's son? You know, he, he, we know his brothers and his, his family. It's, he can't be anything special. People didn't know who Jesus was. And now Jesus is asking the questions to his disciples. Who do people say that I am? You've been out. There's been lots of people coming to me. Who are people saying that I am? And there's a number of different answers that people are speculating about. So they're seeing Jesus and they're seeing him doing all these great miracles. And they're like, it could be John the Baptist come back. We knew John the Baptist. He was out there and he was, um, he, he was baptizing people. And then he went off the scene. Now he got arrested and he got killed. But, well, where is he? But maybe, maybe this is John the Baptist come back. Maybe he's Elijah. Remember, Elijah didn't die. He was taken up into heaven. So there was, oh, maybe Elijah has come back to earth. Maybe he's one of the prophets. All of these are significant people. Interestingly, they're all people from the past. But there are lots of views about who Jesus is. There's lots of views today about who Jesus is. Lots of people have opinions about who Jesus is, or was, if we look at the past, actually, going back to the past. Who was Jesus? People ask more than who is Jesus. Some say, oh, yeah, Jesus, he was a good man. He brought some good teaching. He taught people how to live well, a good moral teacher. Some people say, well, he was a total fraud. He went around claiming to be God, and that's ridiculous. So he must have been like some con man. Or maybe he was mentally uh, disturbed. Maybe he was kind of deranged. Maybe he wasn't thinking clearly, like some cult leader, people who think that they're the Messiah come back or whatever. Well, you know, we're not taking them seriously. Why would we have taken Jesus seriously? Some people even deny that Jesus existed, even though there was clear historical evidence that he did. And of course, today, people have lots of opinions about who Jesus is or who he was. We're just coming up to Christmas time. And among other things, there is the thoughts of baby Jesus lying in a manger. But is that it? Is it just Jesus? Is it just this time of year, sentimentality? Or is there more? I wonder how clearly we see. I wonder if we make the connection. Let's show a quick video which might illustrate that. What would have happened to that guy? 
So what you're saying is baby Jesus is the same as cross Jesus? I mean, there's some time in there, right? I mean, he, he grew up, he taught people, he lived a perfect life, he died on the cross and came back to life. That last bit was uh, the what would Jesus do if you didn't see it on the Volvo. <laughs> people, are, people are trying to make the connections. People are trying to make the connections. Who is Jesus? And then Jesus turns to the disciples because they've given lots of opinions, speculation. Jesus says, well, who do you say I am? Who do you say I am? That's the key question for all of us. That's the question. That's, I would say that's the most important question that we will ever answer in our lives. Who do we say Jesus is? Because our answer to that has implications way, way beyond. In fact, for the whole of our life, who do we say Jesus is? And it's a question many people never even get asked. It's a question many people never even get to think about. Who is Jesus? And then Peter gets it. Suddenly, he sees. You're the Christ. You're the Messiah. Depending on which translation you've got, they mean the same thing. You are the Messiah. You're the one we've been waiting for. He's right. He's right. His eyes have been opened, but they've only been partly opened, as we're going to see in a moment. That's why Jesus says, don't go and tell anyone, because you'd think, you know, you're the Messiah, you're the Christ. Great, you've got it. Go and tell everyone. No, he's not saying that because Jesus knows Peter's only seen in part. He's seeing like people like trees walking around. He's not seeing it fully. So he says, don't go and tell anyone because you're going to go and be telling people the wrong thing. You're going to be explaining me the wrong way. So don't go and say yet. What does it mean? What does it mean to say that Jesus is the Christ? What does it mean to say, I'm the Messiah? And that's what Jesus goes on to say. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man, that's him, him referring to himself, must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this. He spoke clearly about this. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at the disciples, 
who presumably are all like with Peter. Yeah, <laughs> mustn't do that. So he's like, oh, they all believe in it. He rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples. And he said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone's ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, son of man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his father's glory with the holy angels. And he said to them, truly, I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see that the kingdom of God has come in power. Or some translations say they see the kingdom of God come in power in the future. All right. So Jesus explains, he begins to explain, well, what it is about the Messiah. What is it that the Messiah must do? The Messiah is going to suffer. The Messiah has got to be rejected. The Messiah has got to be killed and three days rise again. This doesn't sound like the Messiah that the Jews had been expecting. Now, there were some clues. If you look in the Old Testament, especially in Isaiah, that Isaiah talks about a Messiah who is a suffering servant. Isaiah talks about someone who's going to come humbly. <coughs> and won't crush a bruised reed and things like that. But on the whole, most people are thinking the Messiah was going to be some powerful uh, savior who's going to come and defeat the uh, Roman Empire to start off with, restore new life to Israel, restore the glory days back to Israel. That's who the Messiah was going to be as far as people were expecting. Someone who was strong, someone who's powerful, someone who's invincible, um, just as great leaders had, had risen up in their history, just as they'd been delivered from other oppressors like the Philistines and the Midianites and whoever it was, all the other enemies of God's people. But then Jesus is saying, no, these are the things that must happen. Suffering, death, ridicule, rejection. And they're like, what? The Messiah? That's what the Messiah is going to do? That's not the Messiah. That's not what Peter had in mind. When Jesus said, you're the Christ, he's got it, but he's a million miles away from getting it. He's not got it at all. He's seen in part. And so Jesus gets taken along to one side by Peter who now is thinking, oh, I know what it's all about. You know, he's pretty full of himself. Oh, I've got it. Yeah, you're the Messiah, yeah. And then, he, oh, no, I, I need to talk to Jesus here. So he takes him to one side, and he rebukes him. <laughs> Can you imagine rebuking Jesus? <laughs> That's going to be scary. <laughs> he rebukes Jesus. He says, That's, that can't happen. That must never happen. He's like the blind man. He doesn't see clearly. But do we? Do we see clearly? Do we understand what it means when it says Jesus is the Messiah, when, when we hear Jesus is the Son of God, when we sing some of the words in the songs that we're singing? People sing those carols all the time, every year. How many of us see the truth of what we're singing? There's great truth in there. How many of us see it? How many people in general in our society see it and understand it? Do we understand? Do we know why Jesus needed to die? Because Peter didn't. Peter didn't know, why do you need to die, Jesus? But do we know why Jesus needed to die? Really? 
I used to go to church as a teenager, and uh, someone asked me once, a friend of mine said to me, okay, you go to church, you believe in God and everything. I'm, yeah, yeah, I believe in God, yeah, Jesus. So you think Jesus is the Son of God? Yeah, Jesus is the Son of God. You think Jesus died to save us from our sins? Yeah, yeah. And they said, so what does that mean? Oh, um, yeah. Uh, well, wha- why do we need saving from our sins? And I was just like, well, I don't know. I couldn't, <laughs> I couldn't answer the question. Because it, it hadn't, I hadn't really thought about it. It was just something I went to church and I said it and we recited it. And people, well, what does it mean? Why do we need saving from our sins? What, what sins do we need saving from? I don't know. I didn't see clearly. Jesus says the Son of Man must suffer, must be rejected, must be killed, must. By using that word, must, Jesus is about himself. Jesus is saying, I'm going to do this voluntarily. He's volunteering. I, th- I just want to make that point because more and more Christians today are describing the Father's plan for Jesus to die for us, and they're saying, that can't be right. That can't be right. That's, people have called it cosmic child abuse. How can the Father send his son to die on the cross? That's what it's been called by, by theologians and, and Christian speakers. Cosmic child abuse. Jesus willingly went to the cross, though. Jesus said, this is what's got to happen. He willingly went to the cross because of his great love for us and, his father and the Father. He was saying, this has been... This is my intention. And Peter can't get his head around it. Peter just can't get his head around it because Peter's seen the power that Jesus possesses. He's seen Jesus calm the wind and the waves. He's seen Jesus walk on water. He's seen amazing healings. He's seen deliverance. He's seen Jesus provide for 5,000 people and then 4,000 people. He's seen all of these things. He's seen enough to know that Jesus can avoid this. People are going to reject and ridicule and kill you. You can avoid that, Jesus. It's the same kind of thing that the devil was tempting Jesus by in the wilderness. Oh, you can have all sorts. I'll give you all sorts of people worshipping you. Even if you throw yourself off the temple, the angels will come and rescue you. You can command all of those things. And, and in a sense, Jesus knows he can. But that's not the plan. That's not what he's supposed to do. That's not what God's called it, his father's called him to do. And Peter knows he can avoid it. Peter, why do you need to do that, Jesus? The disciples were Jews. Jews were God's chosen people. They believed, they were. And they believed that they were right with God. They believed they were accepted by him just because they were children of Abraham. But they hadn't understood that their sin disqualified them from relationship with God in the same way that everyone else's sin did. We read about how There were sacrifices made by the high priest for the sins of the people. If you're reading the Bible Project, it was in today's reading in Hebrews 5. But it says they also had to offer sacrifices for their own sins, the high priest, because they weren't perfect themselves. No one was perfect. And Paul says in Romans 3, 23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Everyone has sinned. Everyone is short of God's glory. No one can match God's standards. No one can say that they're good enough. Everyone rebels against God. We all need to be rescued by him. We all need to be rescued by him. We're all in this water that that Sue was describing in her word to us this morning. We all need rescue. 
But what are we hanging on to? Are we hanging on to these life belts with things that we've done on? Or we're all needing rescue. The truth was Jesus was telling his disciples, the world can't be restored and renewed. You can't be restored and renewed in your life. You can't be reconciled to God unless I die. Because unlike the high priests, the only person who never sinned was Jesus. He was, he's described in Hebrews as being like a high priest, but he's one who'd never sinned. He's one who'd never sinned. He was the only person who hadn't got any punishment coming for his sin. He was the only person who did meet God's standards. And in his death, he was taking the punishment for our sins. He wasn't just offering the sacrifice like the high priest did. He was the sacrifice. But why? Why does it need to be that way? Why couldn't Jesus, why couldn't God have just forgiven us? Why couldn't God have just looked on us and our sin and just said, oh, do you know what then? I forgive you. Why did Jesus need to die? Have you ever wondered that? Because we could say, oh yeah, Jesus died for us, but why did he need to? Surely God's God. God can just say, okay, I forgive you. We're done. I'll accept you. The reason is because someone has to pay. When any wrong is done, someone has to pay. So, if one of my kids takes my phone, I'll leave you two to decide which one. If one of my kids takes my phone and then breaks it, <laughs> it's fairly obvious which one it's going to be now. Um, <laughs> then I have two choices. Two choices if I want to get it restored. Either I'm going to make them pay for it. I could make them pay for it. I could say, okay, it's $200 to fix my phone. You need to pay for it out of your own money. Or I can choose to pay for it myself. I could choose that. And I will bear the cost of that. Someone's got to pay. Or I could just pay the cost of losing my phone emotionally. <laughs> so one way or another, there's a cost. I either don't have a phone, and I'm paying in that way, or I pay for it to be repaired, and I'm paying in that way, or one of our kids pays for it to be repaired because they damaged it. And they might, they might be able to do that. It's the same with emotional things as well. If someone hurts me, or robs me of an opportunity to do something, or you know, whatever it might be, offends me in some way, I, I've got two options. I can either make them pay. I could make them pay. I could think, oh, I'm going to get revenge on them. I'm going to find some way to get them back. It might be an obvious way. It might be a subtle way. But I'm going to make them pay. I'm going to make them pay for this. That's the way the world works in general. That's the way things go. We see it all the time. We see it in the news. We see it with nations against nations. Oh, they did this, so we're going to do that. And then, but the thing is, if we do that, we just become like everyone else. Everyone's just the same. You know, we, well, which country's right or which wrong? Is, is, are, are the United States any better than Russia, than North Korea? Well, who, who's to say? Everyone's doing the same kind of thing. Who's right and who's wrong? But we, but we escalate and we, and we try and get revenge. We try and make the other person pay. Or... I can choose to forgive them if someone hurts me. But if I forgive them, then I'm absorbing that myself. 
I've, been, I've had something taken away from me. I've had something stolen. I'm bearing some offense. I might be hurt. There's some suffering going on on my part. Either way, someone has got to pay. There's got to be a cost to sin. Who's paying? Our sin, humanity's sin, is against God. It's against God. We might think, well, it's not against God. It's against someone else. But when David sinned by committing adultery with Bathsheba and by getting her husband killed, you might think, well, his sin's against Uriah. Or his sin's against Bathsheba. And he says, my sin only is against you, God. In Psalm 51. He sinned against God. Sin is against God. And it's such a great offense that the cost is so great, the cost is so big, we can't afford to pay. We can't make amends. We can't make it right. We could try our best to, well, I'll do this, God, and I'll do this, and I'll repay you somehow, and I'll do... But we can't because our sin is so great against God. Romans 6 tells us what the result of sin is. The wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The wages of sin is death. That's what comes from death. And so for our sins, who's going to pay? Well, we could pay for our sins, and the cost will be our death. The cost will be death. The cost will be separation from God. The cost will be an eternity not knowing God. We could pay that sin. We could pay it ourselves. But there's a gift of God. Because God says, I'll pay. I'll pay. How does God pay? Well, there needs to be a substitute. There needs to be someone else who's going to pay. Who's going to do that? God himself in Christ Jesus. That's why Jesus needed to die. That's why he needed to suffer. Because someone had to pay. And Jesus said, I must suffer. I must be killed. He was perfect. He was pure. He had no sin. So he wasn't suffering and dying for his own sin. He's the only one who could say that. He suffers and dies so that we don't have to. He takes the punishment. There's no other way that our sin can be dealt with. Jesus shed his blood for us. Hebrews, um, sorry, Romans 9 says, In fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. That's the only way it could happen. Jesus turned the values of the world upside down. He didn't come with an army to deal with the oppression of a corrupt power. That wasn't the Messiah he was going to be. He's not coming in with his army because then that's just the way of everyone else. Then you, well, you've done this, so we're going to make you pay by this. He didn't exert his power. He gave his power up. He sacrificed himself. And as he did so, he defeated the power of the enemy. That's why he did it. And the disciples can't believe it. They can't believe that this is what Jesus is talking about. It's madness to them. And so Jesus, Peter can't see it clearly. He rebukes Jesus. And so Jesus rebukes Peter back. It's like a rebuking contest. Jesus rebukes Peter back. And he says, get behind me, Satan. You don't have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. Even in the church, as we look at Jesus, we, 
can easily have in mind the things of people and not the things of God when we're not seeing clearly. Jesus says, get behind me, Satan, to Peter, because Peter is hearing straight from the devil. The devil would say, Jesus, you don't need to die for the sins of the earth. Let them be punished for their own sins. That's how the enemy would have tempted Jesus. You don't need to do this, do you? Jesus even asked it in Gethsemane, didn't he? Is there any other way, Father? Is there any other way? And then he says, but it's not my will, but your will. It's a huge temptation. Can he avoid death on the cross? So Jesus is standing against Peter because Peter's there and his disciples are like, no, Jesus, that's not the way. And Jesus knows it is the way. And so he says, get behind me, Satan. I don't want to listen to this. I don't want to listen to these lies. I need to listen to the will of my father. Peter's hearing something from God one minute. He's the Messiah. And then he's hearing something from the enemy the next minute. It's possible to do that. It's possible for us to hear from God one minute and hear from the enemy another minute. Because Peter's thinking just as a man. Jesus is his friend. His friend's going to get killed. His heart's being stirred for him. He's, think, he's thinking, well, if Jesus dies, all of our hopes die. What have I given my life for at this point? I'm following Jesus. I'm thinking he's the guy. I'm thinking he's the Messiah. I'm thinking I'm going to be there with him as he comes into victory. He's thinking, you can't suffer and die. Where does that leave me? It's easy to get into that way of thinking. 1 Corinthians 2 says, the person without the Spirit doesn't accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, but considers them foolishness. They can't understand them because they're only discerned or seen through the Spirit. It seems foolishness. It's foolishness for Peter. Things can seem foolishness to us. But Peter was undermining the faith that Jesus had and what he knew he needed to do. He was opposing Jesus in the very mission that he had. And sometimes our closest friends can be the ones who rob and kill our faith. And they can encourage us, but they don't encourage us in God. They don't encourage us in faith, and they don't encourage us in the things that God would encourage us in. They encourage us in worldly ways of thinking about things rather than godly ways, like Peter was doing. They encourage us that, no, you need to assert yourself. You need to seek power and influence. You need to get position. They don't encourage us to serve and give up power to humble ourselves. I say, no, come on, be something. Seek after the things that the world seeks. Seek after status and money. And they, can, and they can Christianize it. They can spiritualize it, should I say more. They can put spiritual words on it. You hear people saying, oh, well, you know what? You need to earn a lot of money. You need to get yourself a nice house. And then you can be a real influence to those other people who are living out there, who don't know Jesus, and who are all in the nice houses and the nice cars and in the exclusive clubs. You can witness to them, so you need to do that yourself. That's how you need to do it, you know. Well, that's not how Jesus did it. Jesus didn't feel the need to do that. Well, to influence people in power, you need to have similar status. Just do the right things. Just live the right way, like Sue said in that picture. But that's the way of the world. It's not the way of Jesus. And we have to learn to be like Jesus and to see through the lies. You can't just, even if they're our friends, even if they're our family, we can't just kind of say, oh, I'm just going to love uncritically. No, Jesus loved Peter. 
But he didn't love Peter uncritically. He saw that some of the things Peter was saying were not from God. And he called him out on it. And we must be the same with our friends. If people are not speaking things of the Spirit, if people are not influenced by the Spirit, if they're just speaking in human terms, we might need to confront them in what they're saying. We might need to even rebuke them. It's a tough word, isn't it? We might need to choose not to spend so much time with them. I mean, we can do the same things as a church. We can try and make ourselves look good. We can try and boast about our achievements. We can try and cover up our perceived weaknesses. We can try and think we'll be whatever the world tells us we need to be to look attractive. We can think, well, we won't won't say too much about sin because if we talk too much about sin, that's going to put people off. So the way to win people and attract people to God is just say everything's nice and and be kind of a life coach to them, a a spiritual life coach. And uh, we can make the message of Jesus palatable to people. Um, Otherwise, it's all a bit strong, isn't it? Some of the things that Jesus said in the Bible, they're all a bit extreme. We don't want to be saying all of those things and putting people off. That's not what Jesus is calling us to. He's calling us to a life of obedience and faith and sacrifice. He says, if you want to be my disciple, you have to deny yourself. You have to take up your cross. You have to follow me. He's calling us to radical, full-time commitment to himself. Of course, we're not going to literally die on the cross. That was a once for all that Jesus did. But he is calling us to die to our preferences. He is calling us to die to our ambition. He is calling us to die to what our family and friends want for us. He is calling us to die to the passions and desires of the sinful nature. He's calling us to die to all of those things and to follow him. We've got to be prepared to go all in. Otherwise, we're just in that limbo position of half seeing, half being blind that the man was in, that Peter was in, and we'll be miserable. We'll be spoiled for the world. We'll have our eyes open somewhat to who Jesus is, but not all the implications of it. And we'll just think, is this it? Is this what it means? It's just like everyone else seems to be enjoying themselves, and I can't. And I've just got to go to church once a week. And what's that about? Jesus is calling us to more than that. He's calling us to be prepared to lose our life, to not be ashamed of him. He says to the disciples, some of you are not going to die. Some people here are not going to die, to the crowd as well, before you see the kingdom of God coming in power. And they didn't. Because Jesus did die, and he did rise again, and many of those people were witnesses to it. And they were witnesses to the spirits coming on the day of Pentecost in power. And they were witnesses to the church exploding in power all across the world, the known world at the time, and growing and and faith spreading and people repenting and baptizing. The kingdom of God was coming in power and some of those people saw it. And we can long for God to move in revival power. And next week, Gary Gallant is going to be speaking into it and talking about revival. But we've got to have something that we're really living for. Are we going to give our all? Are we prepared to lose our very lives for the sake of Jesus? Or are we going to just be content with some fuzzy kind of picture of Jesus? Are we going to be content with half seeing and half being blind? Just coming to church on a Sunday, maybe reading our Bible, but pretty much living the same way the rest of the world does, with the same values. Jesus is here today to open our eyes fully. He came to that man who didn't see clearly, and he put his hands on him again, 
and he saw clearly. Some of us today are in that half-seeing phase. And I believe God's wanting to open eyes today to see him clearly. Maybe some of us have never even seen who Jesus is. They've never e- you've never even considered who Jesus is. You've never even thought, why does Jesus need to die for our sin? What's that about? Surely I can just live a good life. Surely I can, I can just put this my own life belt on, my own lifesaver on. And Jesus is here with a boat. And he's saying, come on, you can get on board. But you, if you get on board, you're going to have to leave everything else behind. Because you're not taking any of that with you. You get on board with me. I'll take you to new places. You'll see things you never even dreamt about. You'll see the kingdom of God coming in mighty power. He's setting a glorious vision ahead of us. But he's saying, in order to get that, you've got to die. You've got to die. I had to die. You've got to die. You've got to die to all these things. All these things that you want to grasp onto so tightly. You've got to let them go. Because if you hold onto them tightly, you're just going to drown with them. Don't drown with them. Jesus is here. Jesus is here. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you, God, that you are the one who saves us. Jesus, I thank you so much that you did not give in to the temptation of the enemy, to the pressures of this world, to the things that people who lacked understanding were calling you to do. But you came and you were obedient to what your Father called you to. Thank you, God, you did. Jesus, you did die on the cross. You were raised to life again. Thank you, you call us to see. Holy Spirit, I thank you, you are here. And I pray right now, just open blind eyes right now. God, I pray where eyes are blind or half seeing, Lord, let us see clearly. Let us open our eyes to you. Let us see what it means to be your disciples, to follow you, to give our lives for you as you gave your life for us. And Lord, we look forward to seeing all the wonderful things of your kingdom as we go on from here. We praise you, God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.